Are you ready? Hey, everybody. Hey, folks. Hello, everybody. People in the back. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the inner loop. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the inner loop. Without further ado. Without further ado. Okay, so without further ado, we're going to get started. We should get started. We're yeah. Rolling. I'm right there. We're, we're, we're going to get started. <laughs> Welcome to the Inner Loop Radio. I'm Rachel Kuntz. And I'm Courtney Sexton. Thank you for joining us. If you haven't already, remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you stream from. For all of our loyal listeners out there, don't forget to leave us a review telling the world how awesome we are. And for any new listeners out there, here on the Inner Loop Radio, we delve into all things creative writing, whether that be inspiration, craft, what makes a great ghost story, or how to construct the perfect sonnet. We play clips of writers from the Washington, D.C. area reading their own work at our monthly reading series, and we invite a few of those writers to join us in our discussion. On today's show, we're going to be exploring how monsters and ghosts present themselves in our writing, what they represent when they are there, and how we use them as foils, covers, and stand-ins. Also, real ghosts, how writing can be a way to work through grieving and talk about death. That's right. Since it's autumn and much of the natural world around us is succumbing to its yearly death, uh, and as we come upon the most glorious of holidays, Halloween, the best holiday. <laughs> we thought this would be particularly timely for a discussion. And after all, isn't the ghost story one of the most cemented in oral and written storytelling tradition? I think so. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> we think so. We think so. <laughs> um, you know, I think I was thinking a lot about the famous ghosts we look at Shakespeare with Hamlet and Macbeth and I mean really is there with a, ghosts as characters as characters those, yeah but is there really like I can't even think of a Shakespeare play where like there's not some sort of ghost, ghost or or premonition or something that's of true the, he's like, very like yeah supernatural real into the supernatural <laughs> Um, and then, of course, there's like Victorian era literature, and we get more into the monsters with the Frankenstein's and the Dracula's. And those are the stories that have like stayed with us exactly. as a culture. They, they, Shakespeare is always there. Um, Frankenstein is there. Mary Shelley just right. like stays with us. We keep telling that same story over and over and over again because we have this fascination with these stories about monsters and ghosts. Right, and it's. You know, so often, okay, so sure, the story itself and the characters themselves are entertaining and vivid, but really it's what they're speaking for or standing in for, right? So, you know, we take Frankenstein. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, what do you think Frankenstein means? <laughs> um, but yeah, but it's a really, I think it's a really interesting lens that, as you're saying, we see throughout history to talk about things that we're, we have trepidation about or that we're literally afraid to talk about. Well, death is like the great unknown, <laughs> right. right? So we have to come up with some way to talk about it, some way to think about it. To be comfortable with it. Yeah, I think to, like, strip away some of the terror. (laughs) The horror. Which is, like, ironic because the ghost story is scary. It's there to, like, but it somehow, like, bringing the fear to the forefront, like, making it tangible kind of, like, dispels it also. It's like that catharsis that Aristotle talks about. Definitely. I actually, I got into a fight with my brother recently about... Mm. (laughs) Juicy stories, tell me. Yeah, no, he he thought I was criticizing his parenting skills because, yeah, no, I I know, I know. (laughs) Um, Because uh, my nephew... is he's 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 really like sensitive to masks and and ghosts and goblins Mm. and scary type things me too (laughs) yeah i mean i'm like i feel you but i made a comment that apparently i shouldn't have made a scary comment you told your nephew a scary story that was way out of his age range that is what i'm hearing as a mother (laughs) no 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 to the effect of hey you know kids need to be exposed at a certain point to a certain level of fear inducing things so that they learn how to overcome them Mm. when they're not a really scary or overwhelming situation so that they can later on in life and that was my concern so wait you totally out. glossed over what you said to your nephew no i just said oh maybe you should let him watch that scary movie for a oh, minute oh i see and then it became 
a, a whole yeah. thing. Yeah, it became yeah. a whole thing. Yeah. But again, I was like, well, if he sees it in the movie, in the fiction of it, yeah, he's a step removed, and then has experience with it emotionally without and actually he can see going how it's overcome because, it. like, exactly. in every story, it's overcome somehow. Right. That's a good point. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> thought so. <laughs> Cordy's brother, if you're listening, she had a good point. <laughs> Thanks, Rachel. Rachel's also a parent. Um, yeah, so I know everything, obviously. <laughs> but yeah, so they, you know, they also have this this um, omnipotent and kind of omniscient. Yeah, as like a stand-in in the too. story, they can serve to like move the story forward in this mm-hmm. like super super way, right. supernatural. I was going to say, <laughs> but that's like too easy. But like they're above the storyline, let's say. And they can sort of, you can pick out, um, you know, things in the story that a character normally wouldn't be able to do. But the ghost can know everything. Yeah, I mean, as a literary device, they're incredibly useful. So useful, so easy. (laughs) (laughs) And then the ghost whispered to me in my ear, (laughs) this information I really needed to know in order to, like, (laughs) Go out the front door. Anyway, um, <laughs> I do wonder, though, and this is actually, you know, we were talking just a minute ago about using the, the fear of death and that kind of thing. But there are that's in our culture. But there are other cultures that are much closer to death and embrace it in different ways. And and something that I would love to think more about, which I don't know enough about, but how are ghost stories told in around the world? In other, other cultures. cultures yeah. yeah. Because we have our, like, traditional campfire, like, you know, and then the darkness crept up and blah, but, like, you know, scared everybody kind of thing. Um, But I think, you know, I think of, like, the chupacabra or things that are more real, almost, (laughs) or, like, could be more (laughs) real, Um, and where they come from, like, like, the origins. Yeah, and what the culture believes happens after right. death sort right. of like what do the buddhists think about ghost stories like is yeah. it sort of nonsensical <laughs> i mean probably <laughs> um but yeah it's also interesting how ghost stories can transcend culture also because mm-hmm. you know even though um you know in the united states we're majority christian and they believe that people go to heaven or hell um you know the 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 basic ghost story is still there. We still think of go- like of ghosts and monsters as something that is always like hiding in the background right. in the shadows. There's something there. Um, you know, even if logically or in you know philosophically, we don't believe in that um still like instinctually well yeah i mean i would much there. prefer to think it's a ghost that like moved my table than someone who like broke into my house and did so oh God, like i'll me, take it give me the culture guys right <laughs> i don't know i can't even watch scary movies about ghosts that's how afraid really yeah i'm like intruders fine uh monsters fine <laughs> serial killers fine but ghosts no they're too real for you yeah Hmm. interesting yeah (laughs) well so okay so that's like a big chunk of what i'm thinking but i would i also wanted to just like touch on which we'll we'll get to it more a bit later so when they don't when they're not actual characters but when we kind of use writing to work through those things that ghosts are a part of like the grieving process at Mm. death um have you done any of that in your own writing Mm, no, I haven't had any serious deaths mm-hmm. around me, except for my dog. That's serious. <laughs> it is serious, but I haven't written about her since she died. So I haven't personally figured out how to use mourning as inspiration. Okay. Um, but I do find it super fascinating. Um, a lot of our readers at our reading series um read about grief and it's such a rich experience as a listener as a reader um to read about and i and also um i wanted to mention joan didion Mm -hmm. the year of magical thinking that book is all about um her husband passing away and her process um, over yeah her the grieving process and basically just how unreal it feels and that and it's just so rich there's so much there and i think it's probably really difficult to capture so when it Mm -hmm. is captured it's magical yeah 
Agreed. <laughs> well, I think that's a that's a good note uh, to stop our little discussion here on because up next we're going to hear from some of the writers from the Inner Loop uh, who have been visited by ghosts in their work, and then later on some who really use that writing as a grieving process. Our show on monsters, ghosts, and grief in writing, let's listen to a few ghost stories. Instructions on how to be a ghost. Return as an ache or a spider web, a thread thin a thread thin crack in the bedroom window pane. Uh, this poem is called Grief's Dog the dog that belongs to grief. (laughs) For the first month, I held grief's square-headed dog and cried into its fur. Gray and soft, the dog let me clutch it like a pup, like I was a barnacle clinging to a ship. The ship of grief threw me across the floor of the lower cabin then crashed and splintered on the shore where dawn never broke. I'd have to dive back into the water again to begin. Gray clouds rippled in furry wisps. They cared nothing for me or for whether I went back to the world. The great dog clutched the wheel, spilled across the deck of the ship sailing out of me into a water rocky and vast. Thanks. This is called Because of Course, short story. I should have brought a better shovel. My hands are freezing, and I want to get out of this sleep. The soft sputtering of a vehicle stops me. I stand up, wipe my hands on my jeans, and stare at the top of the gravel path to await our surprise guest. My heart sinks when a muted red pickup truck pulls up alongside us. An older man, maybe in his 70s, eases out of the cab and lumbers toward us on arthritis deformed legs. What the hell are you doing, lady? It's okay, I know this woman. He peers around me to the small gray headstone behind my jerked thumb. His eyes squint as they land back on me. Look, lady, I don't care whose grave that is, you can't dig up the bodies. No, 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 I'm, I'm definitely not trying to dig up my mother. I rummage in my purse for a thick zip-top bag, holding it up like a trophy. See? Not digging up, putting in. I just need to make sure she gets this. It's really important. Well, I sure as shit hope it's important, but you still can't dig here. I don't care if you're taken out or putting in. I need her to have this. The old man shoves his hands deep in his pockets and inspects his boots. Tears burn my frozen cheeks. It's really been a day, sir. It's only 10 o'clock, lady. Dude, I'm just trying to be a good daughter for once. He motions to the bag. Was that stories about her? About how much I love her but never told her. I hate that I'm crying, but there's nothing left to do. I wrote for two years. I drove seven hours to get here, and I'm cold and wet and drained. There should be signs to direct you, like in massive apartment complexes, but I was on my own. You have to remember where your loved one is buried, which is an annoying burden in addition to the heaviness of visiting gravesite. Everyone there is someone's mother or father or child, and I took great pains to not step on them, but there was no line between the dead grass and the dead. It saddens me to think of people trampling my mother, but she probably loves the attention. And then there was the digging. His voice snaps me back. Hey, why don't you just read it to her then? Read it to her? Yeah, I don't know how long it'll take you, but I got a few hours before I close up for lunch. And that way, you know she got him. 
too wet out to get much work done anyway. Dumb and now mute, I just nod. Well, all right then. I nod again and turn to my mom. I tamp down a patch of dirt and dead grass next to her with my feet. He grabs my elbow. Jesus, don't do that, just wait. He backs up his truck and pulls up behind us, leaving the engine idling. I feel bad about the other moms he's driving over to help me. He lowers himself out of the cab and pats the truck bed. Come on then, I got a tarp here you can sit on and another one you can sit under. It's as good as you're gonna get. I'm not sitting in the back of your truck, it's freezing out here. He tilts his head to the sky, no doubt saying a silent prayer for the strength to not bludgeon me. <laughs> and then wipes his hand down his face. Sweet Christ muffins lady, it's a cemetery in January. What were you hoping for? The ground is frozen and that, he aims a gnarled finger at my crappy shovel, is useless even if you were allowed to dig here, which you ain't. You're almost a full popsicle anyway. He smacks the truck bed. Take it or leave it. He throws my stuff in the back as I haul myself up. I pull the plastic tarp over my head. After a minute, the small window at the back of the cab cracks open and a jet engine blast of heat hits me. It's glorious and reminds me that the sooner I read, the sooner I can feel my face again. Thank you. Speak up. I hope it's good, because that bag weighs like we're going to be here for a while. <laughs> Sitting this high up means I can't see the bottom of the grave, but my mom won't mind. She never liked the way her feet looked anyway. The bag feels heavy in my lap. I open it. Instead of loving text, ribbons of runny ink stare up at me. Shit. Speak up. I'm not talking to you. How did the bag leak? I am about to cry when it hits me that my mom is probably peeing herself from laughing right now. All I can do is laugh with her. I start to giggle, and then the belly laughs come. I don't hear him get out of the truck, but when I catch my breath, he's staring at me. I chuckle as clumps of soggy paper plop through my fingers, like my toddler smushing cold oatmeal. The old man shakes his head. Well, what now, popsicle? I wipe my nose with the back of my wet hand and shrug. I guess I'll be back next year to bury the thumb drive. <laughs> Thank you. That was James Merrifield reading instructions on how to be a ghost, Megan Alpert with the poem Grief's Dog, and Stephanie Klein's story Because Of Course. What makes a great ghost story? Let's hear from an expert ghost story writer. Elizabeth Evitz Dickinson, up next. Let's gather. Gather. Gather, please. Um, you can gather in. Gather around, gather around for the second half. And we're going to get started. We're going to get started. We'll get started. We're officially getting started. Not teasing you this time. Here to discuss the function of ghosts in our writing is Elizabeth Evitz Dickinson. Elizabeth is an active writer living in Baltimore. In addition to being the recipient of a host of awards and grants, Elizabeth has a unique perspective on ghost stories. That's right, she does. Um, part of it comes from a profile that she did on Frances Glessner Lee, who was a woman um, who created recreated crime scenes in dioramas in the 30s. Um, and I'll let you tell us a little bit more about that. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're great glad to have, to have you. you. Yeah, this is a great, great topic. I love it. Cool. Well, it's also, I'm excited because it's very appropriate to have you also because you read with us live just a year ago at our podcast podcast release reading and party. That's right. Yeah. So. Also in October. Yep. Yep. So welcome back. I have to come back every October I now. think that should Apparently. be a tradition. I like it. I I'm like a ghost it. that returns every October. Uh, well, so before we have you read from us, because I do want to read for us, I do want to have you do that. Tell us a little bit about this uh, this crime scene profile piece that you That you, you read with us last year. Well, um, the piece from The New Yorker about Frances Glessner yeah. Lee was about this fascinating woman in the 1930s who was really interested in forensic science. And 
this was a time when police work and crime scene investigation was like, how about we just walk all over everything? <laughs> Maybe we'll heat up the blood and see what we can get from it. Let's like, retrace the footsteps. Exactly. And everybody was invited in, like, oh, you know, wow. neighbors. Yeah. Come on in. Let's see what's going on. <laughs> but what was interesting about Frances is that she had a real desire to speak for the dead. Mm. She wanted to get to the truth of what happened. And in a lot of her crime scene um, recreations, which were these really intricate little dollhouse dioramas. They were known as the nutshell studies of unexplained death. And she was very (laughs) meticulous about like recreating these bedrooms and these houses where these crimes took place. And the goal was to help train police to understand how to go in and get to the truth of it. And a lot of it were um, the, the deaths of women. And what really interested me about Frances, who was a very like high society, wealthy woman in the 30s, is some of these death scenes were, you know, prostitutes, women who were mm-hmm. working jobs in bars, who right. had these complicated lives. And it very much spoke to sort of how do you get at what really happened to the lives of these women who are now departed. And who otherwise probably weren't really considered much at all in the news or you know they're kind of like oh your story doesn't matter really well and also you realize like when you think about like classic ghost stories how many of them happen in the home yes. like how much are about yeah, the haunted absolutely. houses how right. much are about the crimes and the deaths the that happen shower scene yes <laughs> you know yeah. and so she had this unique perspective of trying to figure out how we get at the truth of what happened mm. to the dead and when you go back in history and you look at sort of the origin of ghost stories, a lot of them really were about this idea of how do you let the soul rest because mm, you know what really happened. Think about how many ghost oh, stories yeah. about the dead coming Needing back to have that closure. because they needed to have closure. that closure. Mm. And so um, while Frances probably did not believe in ghosts because she was very pragmatic, okay. <laughs> um, you know, I think she was doing that service for the dead. Interesting. And what could be creepier than a dollhouse recreating a murder scene? Nothing. They're incredible. Nothing so we, they were. Creepier. There was an exhibition at the Runway last winter, and they had several of her nutshell series there. And it was just I, like I kind of had to leave. It was a little so creepy. It was so creepy, but wow. very real. But with these very unreal. Like the dolls are so fake, but the the scenes are so real that it was this odd contrast. For Weird. Me. Yeah. yeah. She really studied all of it. Like when you think about gothic horror, yes. it's like she studied blood spatter mm-hmm. because the goal was it was for it to be a training tool. Right. It wasn't meant to be a story. It was meant to be a tool to learn how to read a crime scene. And she just did way too much detail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's hear a little bit from your writing, because in some ways, uh, the writing process can be like being visited by a ghost or being possessed. And on top of that, I know that the memoir you're working on has some of the kind of some some ghostly spooky parts. And we'd love to hear some of that. Yeah. Okay. Would you like me to tell you a little bit about the book? Sure. Or just go yeah, right yeah, in please. The, no, so um, in 1965, actually in October... And in Arlington, here not far from where we are. Creepy. I know, I know, creepy. Um, (laughs) The sad story is that my grandmother, who was just 48, uh, took her own life. And it was, she never left a note. It was not something that we ever talked about in our family. It was my father's mother. He was 23 when he found her. And what I'm Mm going to read is going to take you a little bit more into that. and after he died, I realized that I didn't know a lot about the past. Mm-hmm. And as a little girl, I was really fascinated with with her, even though I hadn't heard sure. much about her. She was a secret in the family. And so um, I used to dream that this woman with red hair would come and sit at the end of my bed, mm. like when I was five or six. And it was years later that I described the woman to my father, and he went, Ashen. Oh my God. And he said, you, ta- you just described your grandmother. Um, I will say as an adult, I don't know that I believe that I was visited by the ghost. Like I have this interesting relationship with ghosts where I don't know if I believe in them. Right. Um, I do. 
<laughs> but in some ways, even even if it's not a, an actual phantom, as it were, you were conjuring her in a way to fill this void of her not being in your life. Yes, and I think that what really has been interesting to me in the search of this book is not only trying to find out the story of her life sure. um, and doing the service that Frances did to those women, right. like finding her story, but also what's the nature of secrets? Mm. What's the nature of family trauma? Mm-hmm. How can ghosts be grief gone awry? Mm. How can a totally. ghost be the way we don't communicate explicitly, but you know, sort of covertly? And those conversations, yeah. Yeah. So um, it's really just interesting to me, too, because ghost stories often have a lot left out. You know, there's a lot that's missing. Mm -hmm. And so as I approached the story, I wanted to kind of talk about what it felt like as a child to have that sort of ghostly understanding of her and then how that evolved over time as I started Mm -hmm. to learn her story by digging in. Awesome. Cool. I can't wait to hear some. (laughs) So this is called Arlington. My grandmother was dead to begin with. Medical examiner's certificate number 689 filed with the Commonwealth of Virginia attests to this. Name, Wilmeth P. Evitts, age 48. Died on October 21st, 1965. Place of injury, home. Immediate cause of laceration of heart and lungs due to a gunshot wound. When prompted by the form as to how the injury occurred, Medical examiner John H. Judson wrote, she shot herself. Judson certified by his signature that the cause of death was suicide. The form says that my mother supplied the biographical information for the form. My parents had been married a little over a year, and one could conclude that my father was unable to answer such prosaic questions in the hours after finding his mother slumped in a rocking chair, shot through the heart. Even if the paperwork had inquired after a motive, that box would have remained blank. My grandmother did not leave a note. Wilmeth was buried days later in the rich clay soil of Arlington National Cemetery, just a few miles from the apartment where she had ended her life. In 1950, when my grandparents had first moved to Arlington with my eight-year-old father, they frequented the graveyard. Mm. Not because they fancied the macabre, but because the topography was pleasant. Over 600 rolling acres cooled by a breeze off the Potomac River. People had picnics under the shade of homestead elms and black oaks before visiting a historic grave. My grandmother preferred to watch my father pedal his bike along the smooth paved paths. She liked to scan the sky with binoculars for migratory birds while my grandfather cataloged what she had found in his tidy cursive. I was born eight years after my grandmother ended her life. So when I was five and my grandmother came to visit me, she did not drive the 230 miles southwest from Arlington to the foothills of Virginia's Shenandoah Valley where we lived. She did not marvel at the azure fluorescence of the Blue Ridge coming into view, those misty mountains looking from the distance of the interstate like so many layers of tissue paper on the horizon. There were no stops at the scenery along the way, the glistening stalagmites inside of Luray Caverns, or the geologic wonder that is the natural bridge. She did not feel the whoosh of highway swooping her along the skyline drive, never angled off into those mountains, leaving the paved road for gutted gravel to hear the pickers play bluegrass and sip bald-faced whiskey fresh from their stills. No, When my grandmother visited, she was dead. And I must first assure you of this, or nothing good can come of our story. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So, okay, I love that. And I remember loving hearing what you read with us last year. But what immediately jumped out to me is the way you were able to describe the entire scene of where you grew up as a child just by talking about this woman who wasn't there. So she functions as like she navigates us through your entire environment. But also it's a way to build tension. Right. So it's like, you know a ghost is coming. Yeah. Because she says she died before you were born. And then, so she visited me and here's how she didn't do it. And you're like waiting to hear how she did do it. (laughs) (laughs) So like those two things are happening simultaneously. And that just seems like an incredibly efficient tool. 
Yeah, to get in that dialogue. I mean, one way that you can kind of talk about ghosts is in what they don't get, right? Right. What they Mm -hmm. don't experience and what doesn't happen. And then also just that idea of, um, yeah, wanting to set the landscape of where I grew up in the Blue Ridge, which was a very haunted landscape Mm -hmm. as you move through the book. You know, Mm -hmm. it's it's got um, just as a topography. And again, topographies are great settings for ghost stories. I mean, thinking about the Victorian era and like the Bronte sisters and like you know just that landscape of the moors yeah (laughs) it's like um and so there is a part of me that feels like in some ways the the landscape that I grew up in also helped conjure Mm. that sort of magical like relationship with the otherworldly definitely and and the the walking through the graveyard or the cemetery is also interesting because that kind of it's one of those things that I feel like when people retell the stories of a tragedy they try to look back for any hint of what might have been like oh she must have been a very macabre person she hung out in the graveyard all the time when in fact that was not the case at all I mean we walked around Père Lachaise every day in Paris and that's perfectly normal or here in DC the Congressional Cemetery is a dog park now which is is wild but I can imagine that story like being told like oh with the tittering you know the undercurrent or what what made her do it kind of thing which is something I think we write ghost stories for too yeah and I think that you know ghost stories and suicide in that same way you know you have to be careful when you're telling a story of someone where you don't understand what happened at the end mm-hmm. and um i come to writing originally as a journalist and sometimes i i find myself wanting to be rooted in fact mm-hmm. but there's a point where like truth stops and facts aren't there and you know many people want to know what happened to her when I tell them the story. And one of the truths of life is that we don't know what Mm -hmm. happens, which is why we tell ghost stories. We don't know what's going to happen when we die. But it's to explore the unknown. And this is unknown. You have to leave it as unknown. And so part of it is like, well, what is that? What are we left with? What are we living with? And what are we living through? And what can we learn from the not knowing Mm -hmm. as we try and search for some kind of understanding? Mm hmm. Well, I feel like that's a really good place to stop um, and to kind of transition into what will be our our next section where we get into a little bit more away from the ghost stories and into the real ghosts, which you're talking about, um, because we're going to talk a little bit more next on how we write about grief. But it's been wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was great being here. gears from ghost stories to real ghosts how do we explore grief through writing well you know i think um elizabeth touched on it a little bit and as she was talking it reminded me of an essay that i wrote um some years ago now uh i had two aunts who also died prematurely um of natural causes but i never met them and a way of me as a child kind of both trying to meet them, but also grieving them not being in my life, um, was to think about them a lot and imagine who they were and Mm -hmm. find little talismans like around the home that maybe my mom had saved. Um, But it wasn't until I I really sat down to write this piece about them that I realized that was a thing that I did Mm -hmm. and that it was a it was a, a grieving process. Yeah. And that's it's interesting to hear that. Um, aspect of writing about grief in a way that is is not a ghost story. Like right. Elizabeth used the, her sort of intangible grief or her father's intangible grief to create a ghost. And it sounds like um, the story you were working on was much more lighthearted. Let me imagine what my aunts were like mm-hmm. and, and write, uh, use writing as a way to connect with them. Yeah, and to almost bring them alive in a way that they never were because they weren't talked about because of other people's grief, you know? Right, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Well, we have, as you mentioned, several writers over the years who have used writing to 
work through some grieving um, periods. Let's listen to a few. I don't want to die when I'm 46. I don't. I don't. I imagine this negation like a prayer. Use it. It works the same way the flags in the breezeway do. Soft terror blowing through me, slipping past cilia. I imagine it fills my lungs like a thing to breathe or to stop breathing suddenly. They'll say peacefully or unexpectedly in my sleep. I don't want to know what's coming. I don't smoke, but last night I really wanted to bum a cigarette off of the youth gathered around my fire pit. Who smokes anymore? They laughed and waved sticks, poked them at the coals. We ate carbonized sugar like children. I put mine to bed, gelatin fusing to our fingers, faces. Why did I invite them? Why did they come? What kind of hawk is that, roosting above the garage roof? We drink wine from plastic cups and play a game. What would you do with your life if you could, and what's stopping you? There are so many things I still don't understand. Tangles of cables, ports, how to, plug, how to plug things into other things, mycorrhizal networks, time zones, flight. If you unspool the human digestive tract, if you unravel the human circulatory system, if you unhook the bones, unfold the cerebellum. I don't want to die this year from a brain infection like my father did when he was 46, the thing I keep coming back to. The youth eating marshmallows have big plans. You can tell that they thought about them for a while. I'm worried that sounds glib or dismissive when it really makes me feel hopeful and glad. Pass me that stick, will you? When I was their age, I had a roommate who would not eat chicken because she said their nervous systems were more complex than our own. I don't know. It never seemed like a thing to think about. A mother swept from her own roof by floodwaters, children who accidentally locked themselves in a car trunk, playing hide-and-seek in summer heat, the face of their father who found them. Guns, of course, Mondays, yesterdays, days, 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 when I leave mine at school. Form a single line, children, next to the door that opens into the room. Turn off the lights. Quiet, children. Hungry suction of swimming pool drains. Blood pooling around a boy's body. So many holes. The soft parts of the garage roof under curious feet. Rogue planet, my son is certain, is heading straight toward us. Boom. God, I love my children. I love them. What I do is make a praying shape with my hands and then aim them straight out from my pride open eyes. Then my hands are diver hands so I can go deep down. See, my hands are curtains now, fluttering in front, and this is how it becomes possible to push all of it away from my face in sunlight or firelight out toward the edges of recognition where it functions as a frame. I walk around like this every day and I still don't want to die. What would you do with your life if you could? It's such a good question. And heat shimmer periphery, lips split laughing, mouth open pit, keep hiding fire, keep children. You have to admire their optimism. And I do. I do. So I answered, oh, IDK, LOL, dye my hair blue. All right. This is a, a, a series of uh, short, really, really short stories that are kind of loosely connected. Um, okay, I call this Small Territory Fires. I don't like mesas, she confesses, while looking out the car window at some. No, he says, to be polite. Nope, she says, confirming to herself with a last study of the distant forms that they are the giant, sad, empty stages of the world. Affirmations there is nothing happening on high. He lugs a beaten convertible suitcase behind him, switching hands each time the burdened arm begins to tire. The walk to the station is several kilometers long, and he won't make it unless he hurries, and even so, he is not sure to make it. He feels terrible. His intestines gurgle. He'd like to feel almost anything else, but in particular, he would like to feel light. He had taken a pamphlet from the kiosk at a tourism bureau on the day he arrived. He hesitated dreamily over a photograph of some people standing at the edge of a rocky cliff jutting over the water. 
He wanted to go. He asked the worker at the bureau to explain where it was. But there are things about himself he doesn't trust. He possesses a dormant streak of impulsivity that runs dark. When he stands on high balconies or bridges, he feels the pull and urge to jump. He imagines the sensations, zooming regret, the threat of the ground, cracking limbs. He imagines beyond his death, the scenes from home, sobbing colleagues, foil-covered casseroles brought to his mother, his childhood photographs framed and arranged on a fancy parlor table. It is possible to die. He could make it happen. What power to make a room full of people glow with lamentation. All that keeps them from being sad, those people who like him, is his remaining alive. His pace lags as he thinks about it. He's unlikely to make his train. One train comes to town per day, and if he misses it, he could go see the cliff in the late afternoon. But he could still make the train. There's a chance. He should try. He experiments with different walking speeds, finding previously unknown stores of energy that don't last long. If he expends all his energy trying to make the train and misses it anyway, he will be even angrier than if he resigns himself now to not making the train. And perhaps that frustration will be the kind that can only be consoled by a singular experience. He thinks of the beautiful line of his body leaving the cliff. It would make an elegant coda to a film. He sees the fallen body becoming small, disappearing into water. The thrill of the decision to die would be so fleeting, though. Missing the train could be fatal for him, and not in a good way. A minivan slows behind him, and the driver rolls down the passenger window. Alaguerre asks the driver. She's pleasant-looking with a maternal air. When he doesn't answer, she switches patiently to English. To the station? Is that where you are going? He cannot tell if this torture is torture or a training session to help him withstand torture. Torture is a visit to deep space, a veteran told, told him once. You don't know how you'll do until you're there. There's no momentum and you will not see the end. This helps him at first. Torture is a place, though it is not like space at all, but cramped, thick, and sticky like a wound. He does not know how long ago the veteran spoke to him. Memory of the veteran's words called to him from somewhere, the sounds hollow and muted. I am here, burning, because. His sense of time can't be trusted. It may have been weeks, no food, little water, no sleep that does not get promptly sliced apart by sounds and lights and beatings. I am here, burning, because there is a reason. Because of training. Because of training, I am here. I am in danger, or I am learning how to be in danger. If this is training, the training is excellent. If this is training, this is an opportunity. I can suppose this is training. I can suppose the opportunity. I can assume the ministers of my torture have a great and noble aim. This pain is articulated in someone's bright diagram of how the world must run. When the pain is like ice, I'll refer to good ice. I will remember how ice is used to numb pain, how it will hiss and crack in a fresh drink. When the pain is like heat, I'll refer to good heat. I will remember how heat coaxes open a knotted muscle, how there is heat contained in a wide, soft beach. Thank you. You know, when animals are close to death, they like to get away and hide. 
and a lot of people believe that's because they understand what's going to be happening, and there's a sort of graceful acceptance of dying, and many um, pet owners actually believe that their, their animal is trying to, like, spare them the trauma, you know, of the last days. I, I, I don't think so. I, I, I think animals want to live. And they have a very primal instinct when they're vulnerable and weak to go get somewhere outside, down to the ground, under a bush, and be safe from predators and try to heal and live another day. Anyway, whatever the reason is, when the summer that my dog turned 16, he wouldn't stay inside at night. He had to go outside and hide. And I wrote about that night. There's an old metal windmill in my backyard. Eight feet tall, ivy climbing one side, someone's long ago notion of whimsy. The wind blows, its rusting blades turn, and overhead the branches sway. Briefly, I can see the summer stars. On the ground, beneath the windmill, my old dog turns his blind head back and forth. He can still smell honeysuckle, dirt, the squirrels, me. He's known this backyard kingdom his whole life, and now he will not sleep inside anymore. He must be out here in the dusty grass. At 3 a.m., I bring him warm soup to tempt his fading thirst. He laps it up, beef broth on his tongue, my hand in his matted fur, the good smells and the warm breeze. He still wants Oh, he still wants everything, and soon it will all be gone. He isn't afraid. Safe in his steel tower, my dog rides to his death as the gentle night enfolds him and its wonders. That's it. Thank you. That was Sheila Squillante reading an untitled poem. Emily Flam reading Small Territory Fires, and Vicki Fang reading Night. Um, and you know, that last one stuck with me because the death of a dog causes a particular kind of grief that seems to lend itself to writing. Totally. Uh, on our last retreat to Porches here in Virginia, I wrote a poem about Maisie, who was the resident dog during her last days. Yeah, and she passed away. She did, shortly thereafter. But we... Um, we spent several different years at the porches, so we got to be there um, when Maisie was still there Definitely. and after her passing. Um, so she left a space, I think, in all the writers who visit the porches. Absolutely. But speaking of the porches, uh, we're going to lighten the mood a little yeah. bit coming up, a little fun Halloween treat. back to the porches this month for our annual writing retreat and one of our favorite parts is gathering around the campfire to read what we've written and writing pieces together that's right in fact we love playing uh the exquisite corpse writing game at our retreats uh, so much so that we've invited two of our Interloop alums who've also been on our retreats to act out one of our stories that we wrote during Exquisite Corpse. So, Dan Knowlton and Kate Heller, why don't you tell Welcome. us exactly what that is? Hello. <laughs> <laughs> tell us about the Exquisite Corpse game. Okay. Um, so, the way that... Did we have prompts? We did. Yeah, yeah. so at, at, the, at the retreats, we usually like, pick a... Everybody picks a genre. Mm -hmm. Which you don't have to. It's an optional component of the Exquisite Corpse. Yeah, yeah. You can put a genre at the top, and then you write the first line. Yeah, you write one sentence, and then you pass it on to the person next to you. They write another sentence, they fold yours down, and the person next to them only sees their sentence. So it's basically like a giant game of writer's telephone. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's and a so, great. That's a that's a great way to describe. That it. is a really <laughs> great way to describe it. Yeah, that's what it is. Right on a telephone, and as one can imagine, it gets like really loopy. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the first year was it our very first retreat that I we think, did? Yes, I think I it, was. it was. Yeah. We wrote this insane, exquisite corpse that we love, and we actually read it. <laughs> We've read it. We we read it on our very first episode of the Inner Loop did Radio, we? which was exactly a year ago. By the way, this is our one year anniversary. Oh, of the I Radio. remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Um, so now we are going to get a live reading, like acting out. Courtney yeah. and I just read it. It was not the it same as so what cool. we're about to it's experience. It's going to be so much better. <laughs> so this story, and actually this came from Dan's prompt of a noir genre piece. And I, Who doesn't love noir? <laughs> <laughs> what you can't see right now, nope, I won't nope. describe what can No, no, don't do it. <laughs> anyway, it's called Small Batch Murder. Kate and Dan, take it away. Take it away, guys. When the dame walked into my office, I should have known she'd be trouble. Her hair was parted to the left side, swept beside a half-opened eye. Damn mosquitoes. But when the blood came steadily, her heart beat her into a panic. Sonny's not coming. Sonny's not coming and neither is nobody else. I'll bleed out right here, right here on the floor of this two-bit soda shop in this good-for-nothing town. Not before I find the SOB who dealt this fatal wound. I crawled to the phone box, my gimlet still in my hand. With my last ounce of strength, I dialed the number and said, Murder! It was a small batch murder! (laughs) Sonny? Bravo! Oh my god. You guys are incredible. Thank you. The lovely Dan Knowlton and Kate Heller. Awesome. Well, that was a, an artisanal murder story for you there, folks. Small batch. Happy small Halloween. Batch, local. Happy Halloween. Trick or treat. And that's our show. Join us next month for another hour of literary fun. To find out more about us or to submit to read at our next event, visit us at www.theinnerlooplit.com. Today's episode was produced by Courtney Sexton. Our theme music is by Andrew Logan, and our technical manager is James Skinner. Thanks again, Elizabeth Evitz Dickinson, Kate Heller, and Dan Knowlton for joining us on the show. And special thanks to Tyrone and 202 Creates for this lovely podcast studio. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or any other streaming site you use. Podcasts thrive on reviews like yours. So if you want to support The Inner Loop, take the time to tell the world why you love us. And don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. Happy writing. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. <laughs> right on the <that> with. <laughs>